You are a rather rowdy bunch here, aren't you? <laughs> but I tell you, it makes me feel like I'm, I'm back in the Philippines. You know, a lot of times I'll, uh, I'll speak at a, at a chapel. and I'm, Should I turn this off, do you think? Or I'll speak at a chapel, and afterwards they'll come up to me and say, Oh, we're so sorry because we had a child that was a little misbehaving or we had some... I don't even hear it. I'm used to... Chickens running up and down the aisles, dogs coming up and sitting on the platform with me, kids. I had one time where I was preaching and I saw a little girl come up and she got into the middle of the chapel. She saw a little hole that was in the middle of the chapel, squatted down and did her business in the middle of my sermon. You know, so I'm used to this stuff. You You couldn't be rowdy enough. And, And it really does remind us of our home assembly, too. I love hearing the little children. I love it. It's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. And, and if people ever complain about noisy children, man, that is such a wonderful problem to have. To have all these little ones. And it's just such a blessing, such a blessing to, to hear them come up here and, and say all those verses. After hearing them say all their verses, I'm thinking, yeah, I really don't need to share anymore. The Word of God has been shared from the mouth of babes. And what a wonderful thing that is. And I was also thinking this morning, and I don't want to use up too much of my time. I was also thinking this morning that as we are breaking bread and remembering the Lord this morning, I was wondering about how wonderful it is to be able to remember. That's a tremendous faculty that the Lord has given to us, an ability to remember. And another wonderful faculty that the Lord has made and created in us as human beings is the ability to forget You know, we'll say that we often will say that you never really forget anything. And that may be true. There are certain things that you will never forget. But the Lord gives us this wonderful ability that in the very, very difficult things sometimes that we go through in life, when you go a few years beyond, you forget the hardships and you remember the blessings and you remember the good things that God has done. But it's a wonderful thing to be able to remember, to remember our Lord, to remember the things of his word, to remember is a wonderful blessing. I've been in the house with with Joyce's folks, Ken and Elaine Brooks and Ken Brooks. After serving the Lord for 42 years in the Philippines and and having accomplished a great deal for the Lord while he was there, currently his his mind is 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 fading and it's, and it's really sad for us to watch. It's really hard. And some of you understand this, that he's, he's losing his capacity to be able to think clearly and to remember. And this week, I was sitting on the front porch with him. He turned his wheelchair around and he looked straight at me and he said, you don't care what happens to me. And, and, you know, that's that's one of those sad things that you hear. And you know he doesn't mean it. You know he doesn't understand what he's just said because he said it to his wife, too. So I, I didn't feel so bad. But it's the idea that the mind is just going. And then he said to me at the same time, right after he said that, he said, he said that uh, I've tried to accomplish things and don't get anything accomplished. And I had to remind him at that time 
all the things that he had done in his service for the Lord over 42 years in the Philippines, reminding him of how the Lord used him, reminding him of how many have come to know the Lord as a result of his ministry over there, to remind him of the works that are still going on in the Philippines that he began, reminding him of all the students that used to come up to me before we'd come home and say, say hello to Ken for me. He taught me Bible doctrine, or he taught me this, or he taught me that. And... Uh, so much that he is forgetting. So never take for granted what we have in our memory. The ability to remember the Lord and to remember the things that he has done for us. Turn with me to Ezekiel, please. Two very important chapters of the Word of God, especially in light of the things that we see happening in the world today, in particular in the Middle East, things that we see happening. This portion, and, and I'll, let me read it first, then we'll, we'll make a few introductory comments. Obviously, I'm not going to be able to read through both chapters in their completeness. Oftentimes, when a speaker comes, and you have to understand this, when a speaker comes and he's requested or, or he's going to share in a small portion of the Word of God or, or in a larger portion like this where it's covering a couple of chapters, the speaker has to assume some things. And that's always a dangerous thing to do, but a speaker has to assume that you understand the basic context of these chapters as we go into them. Now, that may be an, uh, an assumption that may not be true among you, but I have to make some assumptions. But we're going to read portions of chapter 38 and 39 this morning. Let's begin at verse 1 of chapter 38. Now, the word of the Lord came to me, due to Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, or Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and, and uh, Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords, Persia, Ethiopia, Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all its troops, the house of Tagamar, Far, uh, from the far north and all its troops, many people are with you. Prepare yourselves and be ready, you and all your companies that gather about you, and be a guard for them. After many days, you will, you will be visited in the latter years. You will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, in all your troops and many people with you, thus saith the Lord God. On that day it shall come to pass that 
thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against a land unwalled villages. I will go in a, in a peace, uh, to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates to take plunder and to take booty. To stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited, against the people who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell in the midst of the land, Sheba and Dan, Adenan, and the merchants of Tarshish, and all their young lions will say to you, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away uh, silver and gold, and to take away livestock and goods, to take great Plunder, And let's go to chapter 39. Again, you'll find some of the similar accounts in chapter 39. And I'm going to, to jump down in this account and go down to, uh, to verse 9. Let's go to verse 8. Surely it is coming, and it shall be done, says the Lord God. This is the day of which I have spoken. Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel go out and set... The, and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers, the bows and the arrows, the javelins and the spears, and they will make fires with them for seven years. Down to verse 21. I will set my glory among the nations. All the nations shall see my judgment, which I have executed, and my hand, which I have laid them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. And let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we recognize it is an awesome responsibility to handle your word. And so, Lord, we seek the guidance of thy spirit that he might speak to our hearts and take your word and apply it there for your glory. May you teach us today. May we learn, may anything that is said that is not in order and not right be quickly forgotten. But may those things which you want us to remember that are helpful in changing us, may they be grasped onto and held onto for your glory. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, a couple of years ago, I taught about a 40-plus hour series of lectures or series of, of uh, messages on eschatology while I was in the Philippines. Taking, beginning at understanding the hermeneutics that are involved in teaching or understanding eschatology. Now, we recognize that the interpretation and the interpretive methods that we use will affect the way we see portions of the Word of God. And there are several methodologies that are implied, and we'll, we'll take a look at some of those as we move forward today, because I think it's important that we understand. Well, let me mention something now before we even go on. When I look at these portions of the Word of God, I always seek to look at these portions in a historical, literal, grammatical way. I seek to look at them as the people who were living in the day of Ezekiel would have understood them. 
And that becomes very important when you get down to trying to identify the nations that are in this prophecy. How would the people who heard the prophecy have understood these names? Now, there's another way in which many scholars will approach some of these portions. They'll approach it in what is called a bloodline or migration type of interpretation. Sometimes they'll mix the two. What I mean by a bloodline, and I don't want to get too technical today, but I, I tend to wander. A bloodline or migration look is to take a look at the people that are mentioned, see who they were, where they've migrated to over the course of the many centuries, find out where they are now, and then identify these portions based on the bloodline and the, the movement and migration of people. For example, the Scythians who were once in this area and then migrated out and migrated up as far as the the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea and then settled up into that area up in there. I tend to be different in many ways, but I tend to be different. I like to look at these things strictly in a literal historical, linguistic, or uh, grammatical way. And that's the way we will be approaching much of this study today in the, in the very, very limited time that we have. Now, eschatology, despite what some may tell you, and despite what some with very forceful arguments will say, eschatology is not an exact science. And if anybody tells you it is, they're selling something. And generally it's a book. It is not an exact science. We are always learning, always growing as we're learning the things that eschatology is teaching us. To try and decipher ancient prophecies, to try and decipher these ancient prophecies that are couched in... In ancient terminology that are couched in ancient symbols and ancient cultures and ancient languages can become very complex and problematic. So as we go forward and look, one must understand that it's very difficult to be dogmatic in a lot of things when it comes to teaching about future events, simply because oftentimes it simply is not clear. But I believe that when it begins to happen, it will become very clear. (laughs) And all of a sudden we'll be able to put it together and say, ah, ah, it's it's similar to, to the Jews reading about the Messiah who is coming. And reading portions that seem to be contradictory. That he was coming to set up his kingdom. That he was coming to defeat the enemies of Israel. And he was going to set up his kingdom. And at the same time, they're talking about one who would come and suffer. And it was hard for them to put the two together. And oftentimes that will be the case as we study through uh, portions of, of eschatology. But with that said and understood, we can reasonably 
approach a portion of the Word of God like this with that grammatical sense and seek to understand and learn a great deal. We can learn a great deal from the text. Now, the interpretation of these places in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is important to us, especially in light of the world in which we live in today. They're actually in the Middle East right now, what you would call two Islamic states. Now, you don't normally think of it in that term, but there are really two Islamic states. Now, I'm not talking Islamic nations. I'm talking two states in the, in, in the Middle East that either have proclaimed a caliphate or want to and desire to claim a caliphate, but have not yet done so. And a caliphate simply being a ruling nation. A caliph is one who rules, and the caliphate is the area in which he rules. These two nations, these two states, are Iran and ISIS. ISIS has openly proclaimed a caliphate. And we're, as we go through, we're going, to, we're going to see what some of this means. Iran, on the other hand, desires to see a caliphate begun in their nation that will embrace all of Islam. That's their desire, as it is with ISIS. The desire that all of, of uh, Islam will come to their side. Now, to refresh your minds, you remember that Iran is Shiite Muslim for the most part. And you've got to understand, we're talking in generalities here, because most of these countries will have a blend of different kinds of, of Islamic belief. Or they'll have a different blend of ethnic things, it's like, it, like Iran. We all understand that Iran is, is not, they're not Arabs, right? Iran is not Arab. Iran is, comes from the Persian. They're Persian. They don't speak Arabic. They speak Farsi. But Islam is a very much a part of who they are. And without taking a lot of time to go back historically, we can see, if we go back historically, you know, I always, I do this to myself all the time. I say, we're not going to do it, and then I do it. <laughs> If we go back historically, we have to go all the way back to World War I to understand the, the Middle East as it stands today. And the reason I'm saying that, I'm going to go really quick through just a couple of quick things. First of all, you've got to go back all the way to World War I because, the, because during that war, you remember the Ottoman Empire was still in existence. And during that war, Britain and France who are fighting now against the Ottoman Empire and against Germany, they made promises. You remember the story of, of Lawrence of Arabia. Well, they went down, an Englishman went down into Arabia, convinced a bunch of Arabs to join in Britain in attacking the Ottoman Empire, which was also Muslim, to destroy them with the idea if they could destroy the Ottoman Empire, they could also conquer Germany. They'd have a route into Germany where they could conquer. So they made promises that if you come with us and if you join us, we will give you your own nation when all of this is over. We'll carve out a nation for you when it's all over. And they did the same to the Jews after World War I. 
They needed something that the Jews could provide for them. And one Jewish scientist provided it for them. And they made promises to him that they would try to give him a nation for the Jews to come back to. The end of World War I came. And they had secret plans to divide the nations among themselves, which they did. That began to stir up the anger in the Islamic world against the West. And that is where the fires begin. And then you advance forward, of course, to World War II and the promises that were made there. And what happened at the end of World War II. And you remember in 1948, Israel was granted nation status and became a nation for the first time since the Babylonian captivity where they in their land with Jerusalem as their capital as a sovereign nation. Now we recognize that they came back to to Israel after the Babylon captivity, but they were not a sovereign nation until 1948. And then in 1967, of course, they took back Jerusalem and they became a sovereign nation with Israel as their, with Jerusalem as their capital. First time since the Babylonian captivity. And you'll remember that Daniel's prophecy speaks about you, your nation and your holy city. And then the prophecies begin. Anyway, we're getting way off our subject. Here in, in chapter 38 and 39, we are seeing what will become a war that will begin in the Middle East. Now, the identification of these places become important to us. Now... Let's go to 38 where we were. It begins with Gog of the land of Magog. Gog is simply a, it's a title. It's more of an adjective. It's a descriptive thing of a chief or a ruler. There appears to have been at the time where, when Ezekiel wrote, there appeared to be in the north a really cruel man who was a ruler or his descendants were from this man Gog who was this ruler. Gog of the land of Magog. He was the ruler of this province, this area called Magog. So you have Gog of Magog. And then you get down into these other countries. Meshech. And then it goes down where it says the prince of Rosh. Here is one of those areas where we get into this whole idea of the, of the bloodline migration theories. Oftentimes it is taught that Rosh refers to Russia. And again, I'm telling you, eschatology is not a very exact science. But linguistically, Rosh... Rus does not really apply to Russia. If you do it linguistically, if you do it by the grammatical historical approach to this. Ross, you don't take it as a proper noun. It is taken as an adjective, which is its normal usage. And the adjective is prince. So you have Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. So you have this man who is like Gog, a ruthless ruler, who is the prince of these two places that he mentions, as well as these others. Now, where are these places? 
Where is Mission and Tubal? Some will say, well, that's Moscow and another place in, in Russia because we've already assumed that Rosh is Russia. And, and there's a whole big thing behind this, and I just don't have the time to go into it, and you understand that. But these two places are actually found more accurately in Turkey than they are in Russia. It is very possible, very possible, that when Ezekiel was talking about these places to the far north, to the far north of where he was at the time in Babylon, where he had been for, where the nation was for, for many years, 2,500 plus years ago, Ezekiel found himself in Babylon, which is where current Iraq is. Directly north is where we find this area of Turkey. You go the farthest north for them would have been the areas of Turkey. Beyond that was like nothing. It was like the end of the earth. So if we think of now these areas as being Turkey... And we begin to think about what is going on in the Middle East right now. We see, we see Syria. Let's take Syria. Syria isn't even mentioned in this prophecy, which is very interesting. Because they sit right next door to, to, to Israel. But Turkey, I mean, Syria isn't even mentioned in this. But in Syria, we, had a man called, we have a man called Assad, right? Assad is... He is a, from a small tribe, actually, of Shiite Muslims. Syria is dominantly Sunni Muslim. And every time you go into any one of these nations, you are finding this mixture of Shiite and Sunni. And you've heard it before, right? You've heard this term Shiite and Sunni. They are all Muslims, but they are of different belief systems. And they fight against each other all the time. Warring against each other all the time. Why? Because it comes down to, to uh, who was rightfully the heir of Muhammad. Who did he pass on the leadership in Islam to when he died? One group said it was the grandfather. One group said it was his dear friend. And the two things split. And there's many, many other things in there. Many, many other things. But they hate each other. And therefore, they, are, they each see each other as the infidel. Now, an interesting thing happened in 1979, and you remember in Afghanistan, in Afghanistan, and we'll go, have to go back to Turkey in a minute, in, in Afghanistan, we had an interesting thing happen back in the in this late 70s. You remember that Afghanistan at one time was a Soviet kind of place. It was Soviet because the leader there was a socialist who had accepted and adopted all of Russia's philosophies and ideas, and now he was doing this in a predominantly... Um, Sunni area of the world. And you remember the Russian war that came into Afghanistan because the, 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 the um, Sunnis rebelled and began fighting against this uh, dictator who was supported by Russia. And as he battled against this dictator who was supported by Russia... This dictator started to fall. Russia ran its tanks in. And you know what happened? This is, a, this is one of these interesting things that will happen. And this is very important to understand. Is when Russia came in, Russia was considered the infidel 
above the infidels of each other. And the Sunnis and the Shiites joined together to fight against Russia, to push Russia out. And when they did, and that was one of Russia's greatest defeats, it was their Vietnam, when they got pushed out, the Sunnis and the Shias went back to fighting themselves. But you see, that's an important point. They will join together to fight against the infidel. Even though they call themselves infidel because they don't believe, they are still Islam and they'll fight against the... Now, fast forward to today. You have this caliphate in ISIS who is mainly Sunni. And you'll hear our president and you'll hear others that will say, they're killing as many Muslims as they're killing Christians. They're killing lots of Muslims. And they are. They're killing Shiites because they are considered infidels too because they didn't follow the exact line of thinking of the Sunni. And so they can come in and according to their way of thinking and interpretation of the Quran, they can destroy them and still be honoring God, their God. And so you see this happening, but you understand something. In a caliphate, as in Iran, and there's two different, they're both the same, but doing two different things. In Iran, uh, in, in the caliphate of ISIS, they, they have gone beyond radical Islam. You understand that, right? We hear radical Islam. We hear that term over and over again. We hear attacks by radical Islam. They have gone beyond what radical Islam is. They've gone beyond what Al-Qaeda is. They've gone beyond that to what we call an es- eschatological Islam. They've gone to an apocalyptic uh, Islam. And that is part of the Quran and part of what they believe. And in other words... When they declared this state, they were now declaring that the end of times has come. And because the ends of times have come, join with us in this caliphate to wipe out and destroy all the infidels. Because the more chaos we can create, the more chaos we can cause, the sooner Mahdi will return and deliver us. You see, they have, a, they have a Messiah as well. And it's very interesting when you study their eschatology and you study the eschatology that we have, there's very many similarities. Why? Because Muhammad borrowed it all and changed it for his own benefit. And so now they believe that their Mahdi is coming. But he will only come when they create enough chaos and they have enough war that the, that the Western empires, the great Satan and the little Satan and all of them come against this caliphate. And as they come against this caliphate to do battle, all oh, then Mahdi will come and he will deliver us from all of this. And so for them, and I don't believe that, by the way, but for them, their thinking is... If we can draw the United States, if we can draw the Western empires, if we can draw them into battle with us, put boots on the ground, start attacking us, then my Shiite brothers will join us, and all the Sunnis will join us, and all of Islam will join us to fight against, like they did in Russia, against the infidel. See, so we play into their hands, into their apocalyptic eschatology, if you will, when we do exactly what we're doing. And I'm not saying we don't need to do what we're doing. Because I believe we will. And I believe the final result will be that they will be nullified. 
and the caliphate will not take place. But in Iran, there's a caliphate as well. They don't call it a caliphate. They want a caliphate. They want everyone to join on their sides. They're doing it a little bit differently. Their plan is to build up enough power and enough strength, perhaps nuclear, and then attack with nuclear capability against the West and draw all of Islam to their side to fight. Bring it down now to where we are here in, in Ezekiel 38 and 39. You'll remember that Turkey, this area that is, that is where Meshach and Tubal and, and these other places, I, I, I always have trouble with the names, where you have all of these nations that are joining together, you recognize, and I have to go back just a second, you recognize, and 45 minutes isn't enough time to do this, but you recognize... That chapters 35 and 36 of Ezekiel have to a large part been fulfilled. Not in their completeness, I understand that. And I understand that Israel has come back in a state of unbelief in a sense. We recognize that they've come back and set up a, set up a nation as more of a secular nation than a, than a spiritual nation. And I understand that. But the fact of the matter is they're back. And the fact of the matter is millions or thousands and thousands of Jews are migrating there. And the, and the dry bones have come together. And there stands a great nation. It has no breath in it. But there stands a great nation. Ninety-three... How is it? Ninety-three thousand, I think, Jews have migrated there within the last five years. French Jews. Seven thousand French Jews have migrated to Israel before the time of the Paris attacks. With another 10,000 slated to, slated to go. So for a large part, 35 and 36 have been fulfilled. Not in their completeness. These things always kind of overlap. But Israel is back. And Israel is a nation. 38 and 39, when it happens, will cause Israel to be reborn spiritually. When they see what God does. Now you have Turkey. You have Turkey that's up above with all the nations. It was divided into all these different... And you've got to remember, too, Turkey was a secular nation. Turkey had a, a, had a secular uh, leader for a number of years who just remember, just a number of years ago was voted out. And they put in an Islamic man with Islamic agenda. And they are quickly turning against us in Turkey. And so now you have this majority Sunni in, in Turkey as well. And now you have all these nations that are presented here. And I'll go through them for us just briefly, skipping through a number of things here. You have Persia, which is Iran. So in here you have Persia that's coming, going to come up against Israel in these latter days. The guy from this area of Turkey is going to raise up it could be Russia. I'm not saying it's not Russia. could be Russia. Certainly Russia will have a part in this. But coming out of Turkey, this new ruler, whoever he might be, is going to have enough strength and enough power to gather together a collection of Jews, to, a collection of um, Muslims to go against Israel with the idea of coming down upon her and taking spoil of Israel. Israel's now back in their land. And the things that we read, read in here, they have already accomplished. The land that was barren is now bearing fruit. And it's a prosperous land. And now this 
coalition, if you will, is going to form a plan, God is going to arrange it. It's very clear that God is going to allow this to be. And in this coalition, you have that from the north. You have Iran, which is the old Persia. You have what is called here Ethiopia or Cush, which is really not Ethiopia as we think of Ethiopia today. It is actually the area of Sudan to the south that joins in this alliance. You have Put, which is Libya, the area of Libya, Algeria. You have that area as well. You have Gomer. And for certain linguistic reasons, again, Gomer has often been termed to be Germany. It, it, to me, it doesn't fit. But if you want to believe it's Germany, it's fine. You're probably right. But it seems to me that linguistically and historically, it refers more to the area which was Cappadocia, which is also in the area north, which is also in, 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 in this area of Turkey. These will come down. And you remember that, that Turkey is 75% Sunni, 25% Shiite, and a bunch of other stuff too. But it was a secular country that has now been taken over by Islamic regime. And so you have now all these nations put together. And the sequence of this attack, because my time is rapidly getting away, I have to move quickly ahead, because even though I'm enjoying this, you may not be. You, know, you may be saying, what? You know, it's getting close to dinner. <laughs> Please, will you end? But the sequence of events. This army in Turkey will now determine that they're going to come down to take spoil out of Israel. Now, a number of years ago, we would scratch our heads and we would say, what spoil are they going to take? Israel is dependent on other countries for their oil. They're dependent on other countries for a lot of their things. But just recently in the Golan Heights, there has been a discovery of oil that is far greater than any of the reserves that have been found. Uh, well, I think it's 1,100 something, 1,150 um, feet deep. And, and that's like 10 times deeper in, in its strata than any of the oil fields that you find in, in Saudi Arabia. There is a potential of 270,000 barrels a day coming out of the Golan Heights. Now, the Golan Heights is what? That's disputed territory, isn't it? They, they are, the, the Israelites are, are called, um, they're called, um, not invaders, what's the word I'm looking for? Occupiers on the Golan Heights. It belongs to Syria. So now we have something of worth, and of course in the, in the Mediterranean off, off of Israel is also the natural gas reserves that, that Russia hates because Russia has control over much of the natural gas reserves that flow down, and so it becomes an economic thing as well. But anyway, they come down to take spoil, and it says, it says that they come down on unwalled cities. Now, we think to ourselves, well, when can this possibly take place then? Because it, it, it can't take place now because Israel is not an unwalled city right now. They're not living in safety. They're not living in security. They're not living in a time when, when they're not af afraid of things. So it must be sometime after the beginning, of, after the, the treaty is signed with the Antichrist. And, and in that first three and a half years or so, it must be when this takes place because they're living in relative safety. And that may indeed be true.
I think, however, that Israel does consider itself to be living in safety right now. I believe that Israel thinks it is a secure nation is perfectly capable of defending itself against any foes. They prove that over and over again. You, you talk to anyone who has visited Israel. Well, I can't, shouldn't say anyone. But most people, when they visit Israel and they come home and say, well, what was it like? Were you afraid? No. I felt perfectly comfortable there. I felt perfectly safe. I never felt like any threat. I never felt... Why is that? Because in one, I heard a politician last week say, we should learn from Israel how to protect our country because Israel knows how to take care of their country and protect the country of Israel. Of course, they're covering a little tiny thing like this compared to what we're trying to cover. So I think the potential for this war to explode does not necessarily need the time of the signing of a treaty. I think it could happen any time. And so now you have this army that's going to come down out of Turkey, joined by an army that's coming across from Iran, joined from the Sudan, radical Sunnis as well, coming up from the south. And you have all of these converging, as well as Libya, converging on Israel to destroy her and to take the spoil of Israel. Coming down, it says, through the mountains is where that invasion will take place. And Israel, as strong as, as an army as it has, as strong as a defense force as it has, as strong an air force as it has, will not have to launch a single plane, will not have to put a single soldier in the field because as this event suddenly occurs and they begin coming across the mountains to attack Israel God will take it in hand God will destroy them God will send fire and brimstone down from heaven think of Sodom and Gomorrah again and God will bring the destruction of these armies that are coming against Israel and he will do it and he will do it alone and he will cause them to be so confused by the battle that is going on and by the brimstone and the fire that he's bringing down to destroy them that they will turn against each other and begin to fight each other. Not unusual in the Muslim world. All of a sudden they see defeat. All of a sudden they see a turn of events. And I can see the Sunni attacking the Shia and going to battle against one another. But why does God do it all? Why does God allow it to happen? I can't speak from the mind of God, but I can just say what's, what I read in this portion of Scripture is that from that time forward, Israel will know that I am God. Israel will know, and there will be a rebirth, a spiritual rebirth in Israel. Not that there aren't many believing Jews in Israel now. You know that. But you also know that the Orthodox Jews do not believe in, the, in Israel as a nation right now. They don't accept Israel as a nation right now. God will bring the nation. And this will be the event that they will see as God bringing the nation. And I believe at that point the, the Orthodox Jews will also join and return to the land of Israel. And they will all come back and they will see God is the one who has delivered us. He is the mighty God. He is the holy God. There's none like unto our God. And from that time forward it says they will follow him. Wow. Wow. 
That's some cool stuff. That's some cool stuff. That's what Ezekiel 38 and 39 is teaching us. Again, timetables. When will this happen? I don't know. I can't put my finger on it and say, I mean, I can look at all these nations. I can see all the turmoil. I can see the the Sunnis and the Shias. And I can see all the different ethnic backgrounds that all play into this hostile environment that is there. But I cannot predict the time that God will do this. But what I can say is, God will do this. (laughs) And it will happen. And I believe, and I may be wrong, I believe that I will see it in my lifetime. Unless it comes after the rapture. (laughs) And then again, and this is not to set anybody off, and please don't get set off at this. But there are a lot of theories, you know. And so oftentimes when I teach eschatology and I go through all the rapture theories from beginning to end, looking at all the pre-rapture, the the pre-wrath, the mid, the post, the ah, when I look at them all, I, I generally will make this statement. I will say, I believe with all my heart in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. I believe the scripture, if you face face it literally and historically, it leads to that conclusion. That the church will not face the wrath of God. And then I'll make this statement generally. So my brothers and sisters, pray for pre, but prepare for post. (laughs) But I know this. I know this. I know whom I believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. And one day I will see his face. And I was thinking of this the other day. I promise I'll close with this. I was thinking the other day as I was walking and praying. I said, Lord, a trillion years from now. When I've been in your presence for a trillion years. I will still be with you. I will still be with you. Ten trillion years. Think of trillions of years. And I will be, hopefully, better looking than this. But I will be with him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Father, we give you thanks for the hope that lies within us. You have given us eternal life in your Son. And many promises that we look forward to. And one of them is that you're coming for us. One of them is that you're going to return for us. That you are going to take us to be with you. One of them has to do with us reigning with you the thousand years here. And then you'll create a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness will permanently dwell. And we will be with you and admire you and adore you and worship you and enjoy you for year without end and so father we give you thanks we give you praise in jesus name amen Amen. i love the tagalog and i've shared this